The scripture reading from today comes from Hebrews chapter 8. It's on page 1005 in your pew Bible. Uh, before we read the scripture, let us go to Lord in prayer. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as is, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much, that's much more excellent than the old covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if, if, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write on them and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Word of God for the people of God. That's we're working our way through a section in Hebrews where the writer is explaining how Jesus is a greater high priest. Uh, than what had come before, he's having to tackle several, several um, elements of the priesthood that we might not think about. Um, but for those who lived at the time when the temple was functioning, um, they knew the details. They knew the way this worked. And to say that Jesus is a great high priest would raise questions. Now, we saw the first question that was dealt with was, um, Jesus wasn't born of the right tribe. If he was of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings, the, the tribe of David, how could he serve the priesthood that was to be the tribe of Aaron? And we looked at how uh, there's this promise of a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. So who he is as a priest has been established, but there is a further question of where and how is this priestly ministry um, uh, done? How does he do this work of a priest? 
And so here um, he is going to talk about where this takes place. And then he's going to move into uh, the sacrifice that was offered because anyone would know, well, Jesus didn't go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. He is our great high priest. He didn't go to where God dwelled. And everyone knew that the the, the priesthood couldn't just go out and offer sacrifices. You couldn't just offer, set up an altar anywhere. The way it worked was God himself had established where the sacrifice was to take place. It was to take place in originally the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, or the tent that then became a temple. It was a place where there was a courtyard where only certain people were allowed, and then beyond that was an altar before the, the holy place, and within that was the holy of holies. And, and so there was a certain place that the sacrifice had to be given. And so this is what he addresses in this passage. And he does so not by making something up or bringing from his imagination or saying, well, really, that doesn't matter. But what he does is he goes back and he sees in the books of Moses themselves and in the prophets uh, something that's telling us about what is to come. It's, it's fascinating that even in the establishment of the tabernacle, even in giving the law to Moses, is a hint of what is to come in Jesus Christ. So the point is that the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne in majesty, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. In other words, he's serving in the reality of the true tent, not a tent set up by people, not even with God's direction, even with God's command, um, the, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly tent was set up by people. And so the sacrifice that is offered, not here on earth, but in a heavenly temple, and what he says is that the, the sacrifices in the temple, the sacrifices on earth, verse 5, serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, all of this that was going on for hundreds of years was a copy of something else. It was a shadow of what is to come. And, and this isn't like some kind of, um, uh, you know, last-minute um, rabbit pulled out of a hat, or it's not like some kind of, you know, like a plot thing that's just made up at the very end, but it's something that is said before. He looks at the book of Exodus in verse 5, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And this comes from Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus 25, you'll remember when God's people came out of Egypt, they gathered at Mount Sinai. And it was there that God gave the Ten Commandments. But more than that, God gave all of his law. He gave um, directions for the temple. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments for Moses was on the mountain for um, quite a while. And here we see in 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. And he lists the things that need to be received, gold and bronze, uh, blue and purple yarn, fine twines, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, wood, all these sorts of things, 
And then in verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. Then he goes on to describe the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand. You'll know that resembles a tree with several branches. And then at the end of chapter 25, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. All of this is to serve as um, what, what Moses is to copy. So he goes down and says, here's what you make, and he describes what he's been revealed. He describes what he's seen. And the writer of Hebrews tells us the reason Jesus didn't serve in the temple was because he served in the true temple. He served in what Moses was seeing there. He served in the true heavenly place in the very presence of God, not in the copy or the shadow that the earthly priest served in. So he has obtained a greater ministry because he's not serving in the replica. He is serving in the reality, in the true temple. As he has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, for he medita- mediates a better, is acted on better promises. So there he's saying he's, he's doing something better because um, the first covenant had not been faultless. So what does he mean there? He doesn't mean that God made a mistake. God gave us something that was not working. He, he means the intent of the, the priesthood, the intent of the temple, the intent of this whole old covenant was not to fulfill what Christ would feel. It was to point to him. It was to lead the way to him. It was to guide to him. And so he begins to quote this lengthy portion from the prophet Jeremiah. Again, not just kind of coming up with something on his own, but actually pointing back to what God's own prophets have revealed to us. And that was, the days are coming, declares the Lord, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And if there's a need for a new covenant, that means the old covenant wasn't going to fulfill what God intended. And with this covenant, with this covenant is the priesthood, is the ministry, is the tabernacle, is the temple. In other words, he's not just going on to something else. He's saying what established that tabernacle and temple and priesthood was all part of this covenant which God intended to be provisional, to be temporary until the reality it comes. It's a copy of what is to come. It, it, and so this covenant, he's telling us, is going to be something new. It's a different covenant. And he tells us at the end of this passage from Jeremiah that the f- purpose and what it will accomplish and what it f- will fulfill, verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It will accomplish what the old covenant was pointing to, what the old priesthood was pointing to, what the old temple was showing to us. So in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. In other words, it was temporary. From before the coming of Christ was the understanding that the temple itself was not the reality, and the temple itself was something that was waiting for something greater to come. This is the truth of the reality that we have in Christ. Now, this is a helpful thing for us to keep in mind. 
Um, one thing is there's some Christians who kind of almost have the idea that um, the, the temple was what God planned. And somehow it didn't work out that he needed plan B, and so Jesus comes. He lowers the standards because these things didn't work out. I've heard some describe the church, the, the us, as almost a parenthesis in God's plan, and that we hope to go back to the temple. We hope to go back to a priesthood that is seen on earth. Um, th there would be some that say that that is the reality, and now there's this kind of temporary thing here. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says all of that was copies and shadows. In other words, it was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He's the reality. So we don't go back to copies and shadows. We realize that we enjoy the fulfillment of what that was pointing us to. Another thing that's helpful for is a lot of times we ask, how were people saved um, before the coming of Christ? And here we see... If Christ was the reality and the temple and the sacrifices were copies and shadows, in other words, they were pointing to, they were participating in the reality of Jesus, what we see is Jesus himself is what those things were pointing to. So when someone trusted in the sacrifice of a lamb, they were actually trusting in Jesus because through the shadow, through the copy was the reality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. All of it is fulfilled in Jesus. So, heady thing. Hope you had your coffee. Rough thing to deal with on a uh, spring forward kind of day. And what does that mean for us? It's kind of a neat idea to think about. You know, here's the reality. Here's. Sometimes application of a message is I need to go do this, right? You know, if I need to turn the other cheek, that means I need to go be forgiving. Um, if, if sometimes it, the application is I need to, need to pray more. Need to, sometimes the application is more of let's flip the way you're thinking about things. Let's baptize your imagination. Let's do away with all the lies you're being told and get a new perception on reality. And I think this is one of those passages that it's not so much something we do as much as challenge the way we think, which affects everything we do. And the way it challenges us is because we in modern 21st century Western culture are in a society and a mindset that is steeped in materialism and the idea that there is really nothing much here except for what we see and touch and feel. Much of that is because there's a very secular world view that does away with the idea of God. Let me read a quote from um, uh, Richard Dawkins, which, you know, he's just great to kind of give us quotes that a lot of people kind of understand and believe. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, the idea that the world just happened, and all that there is in the world is just stuff, 
and matter, and that that matter just randomly created life, and that life just randomly evolved into people, means there's really no right and wrong. There's really no meaning and purpose. At the end of the day, we will all die. The world will, the sun will get cold. The universe will cease. And none of this really has any meaning whatsoever. That's the world that we're kind of told is. That's the assumption. Here's a great thing. You evolved from animals. Now go be nice people. There's no basis for morality. And that is, that's the world that so much bombards us is the idea that there's really nothing more than what we see, that your feelings and emotions and your desires are really just appetites and chemicals that are driving you, and there's no real meaning or purpose. And if, if all there is is just what we see, well, we need a passage like this to tell us, no, there is something deeper beyond this. Because what he's saying is, when there was a temple that was set up, it was not just some people who evolved and tried to develop a morality, or some people who decided that they were going to try to do a power play on other people by setting up a priesthood, or some people who were scared and invented a God to, to protect them. It wasn't based on psychological needs or evolution. It was based on a reality of something in the heaven, something really with God and a real purpose and a meaning that is setting up a, a covenant. And all of that temple, if you look at the description of it, bringing it in, what would you see if you went into the tabernacle? Well, you would go into a courtyard and there would be this giant basin with water. There would be a giant altar with fire. There would be blue and purple um, cloth setting up a tent that looked a lot like the night sky as the stars represented by the candles would shine against it. Someone would go into the heavens symbolically as they entered into the court to offer tents in the holy spot. And behind that was the holy of holies where the very third heaven was represented, the presence of God at the altar, the angelic beings. And all of this was to represent the whole universe of creation, candle stands set up that look like trees, the, the, the water representing the sea, all of this showing us that all of creation, the, these themes that are picking up from the Garden of Eden, the things that were made, the seas, the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them, is saying to us, all of this is to point to the creator, the one who made you. It's not just some random stuff that's been made, but it's stuff that screams to you the reality of meaning and purpose in your life, that screams to you there is something deeper than what you see, that you see the, the, the trees, you see the earth, you see the fields, all of it is telling you there is more than meets the eye. G.K. Chesterton said, that if you go outside and you see a tree being blown by the wind, you feel the wind, you see the leaves move. He said, most of history understood the invisible was causing the visible to move. We are the only people in history who think that what we see is causing the unseen. In other words, they understood spiritual realities, the wind that you can't see making the physical move. We think that all there is is matter, 
all that there is is the physical world, and we invent meaning. In other words, the matter creates desires and longings and things. This tells us, no, there is a God who made everything, and all of creation is telling us about him. A grain of wheat has to fall, and it will produce much. As we see flowers and buds on trees, it screams to us of the resurrection. Our longings and our desires of who we are aren't just chemical things bouncing around that are maybe some of it affected by the caffeine and less lack of sleep, but all of it is saying who you are is more than a sitting in that pew. Who you are is more than any of us can see from the outside. Who you are is the invisible soul that has a body, not just matter that has randomly come into being and has no purpose. What we see is a heavenly reality, a Christ who is there, and a whole system that has been set up to show us what that is. And that means there's meaning in everything you do. Because of this, all that we see has purpose, but all that we see is only temporary. It's not ultimate. It's provisional. It's good. We enjoy it. We, we don't say it's illusion. We don't say we really just need to get away from matter and get really spiritual. We enjoy the good gifts, but we receive them for what they are of showing us the realities behind the veil. And because of that, we also need to understand another thing the writer of Hebrews is pointing at, and that's that we walk lightly with this world. You see, if all there is is this world and the things that we see, and there's no real meaning beyond this, well, I better have as much fun as I can because this is it. I better, you know, if, if somebody does me wrong, my only chance of getting any justice is in this life and revenge. If I'm going to have any pleasure, my only chance is having it now. A few years ago, there was, I discovered got to be careful how I say this. There was a news story about a website I had never heard or been to before, Ashley Madison. It's a dating site for married people who won't have an affair. It made the news because all the names got leaked, and I was kind of stunned at the idea of a website for people wanting to have an affair. I shouldn't have been shocked, but what caught me was the website's um, motto, life is short, have an affair. I don't know if they had much of a marketing department. <laughs> but, I mean, do you see what it's saying? This is life. There's all there is. Have as much fun as you can. Have as much pleasure as you can. It really doesn't matter. I mean, there's no life to worry about a punishment later. There's nothing to worry about. Anything other than having as much fun now. You only live once. Try to have as much pleasure as you can. And that is so different from the perspective of if there is a reality, if there's more to this, I know that the greatest joy is going to come in the later life. And it's going to be based on decisions here. What I do here matters for all eternity, but my greatest joy is not going to be caught up in here. I'm not looking for the most toys here to win. I'm looking at a life that's going to have meaning and purpose for all eternity. And so I have to recognize that this world is not my home. This world is not to fulfill all desires, that my desires are going to be filled in the world to come. And so what we see is 
he tells us that Christ is the true tent. And I find that stunning because this is a time they would have known of the temple. And you would think the temptation for them is to go back to the temple. And he's not pointing to the temple. He's pointing to the tabernacle. And what he's saying is, you're just pilgrims. You're just wandering in the wilderness waiting for the promised land. That means you don't set up home here. We're not setting up our permanent residence as a temple in this place. We're just in the tabernacle waiting for the promised land, waiting for the fulfillment of all things which are in him. Do you see how that changes the way you look at things? I mean, a job interview might be my whole world, but if I recognize it's only a temporary thing and it is important, but the ultimate is my fulfillment in Christ. A relationship going sour, it's going to be painful. It's going to be something to, you know, but it's not ultimate. Ultimate is Christ. All of this points to a true heavenly temple. And when you close your eyes and you pray for anything, you are praying to one who is ministering, not in an earthly copy or shadow, but you're praying to one who is at the right hand of the majesty in the true heavenly temple. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.